What is up, everybody? And happy Independence Day. If you're listening to this on, on the launch day of this podcast, it is Independence Day, and you are hopefully enjoying your independence because that's a pretty big deal. And uh, to celebrate, or I guess in honor of that, we're going to talk about a firearm. Pretty darn instrumental in our independence, and that's the 1766 Charlevelle. We've got, a, uh, I guess, a reproduction, I guess, uh, on the table here, Ryan? Correct, from our friends at uh, Pedersoli. Pedersoli. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, really cool firearm. Obviously, lots of history. Very and, and a lot going on. It, it's uh, really, really cool. It's a neat gun. Let's uh, let's talk about this thing. I uh, it's a uh, it's a smooth bore flintlock. It is. What else? Uh, well, as Mark mentioned, smooth bore. There's no rifling in there, right? So rifle barrels existed at the time, but they were extremely costly and uh, like laborious to produce, mm-hmm. and it was not really in vogue at at that period of time. Um, we understood what rifling gave us, but we didn't really utilize it because you might also use this for shooting ducks. Oh geese. yeah. I imagine you could put a load really? of shot down in there and Absolutely. off you go. Yeah, absolutely. In my, uh, in my limited readings, uh, one thing that was mentioned was, um, I guess due to the, um, I guess the, the, the tactics or the methods of war, the, the increased, I guess, distance and accuracy that a rifled barrel might give a person became somewhat moot when you're on a battlefield and it's filled with smoke and you can't see anyway. That and it, at that time, just looking at rifling practices, actually probably would have complicated the loading uh, under duress in short amounts of time. That's the other thing it says, yeah. is that a rifled barrel was more difficult to load yeah. than the smoothbore. So, I mean, you really just wanted to get rocks in the sky. Correct. Yeah. When you're all lined up like that. And c- quite honestly, could have been rocks. So lead was a pretty... Uh, well-defined commodity at that point in time. We used it for projectiles and as well as other things in, in manufacturing in, at this point in time as a species. Uh, so it was in in uh, limited supply. So we remember the movie um, The Patriot starring Mel Gibson where he was m- melting down the, the lead soldiers. Mm-hmm. Uh, remember to, we could have toys made of lead. Nobody cared. Yeah, it was fun. <sighs> Great time. Yeah. Uh, Mark also mentioned it is a flint lock. So it, it's not the original firearm, um, which would have been probably ignited by a burning ember of some kind or a rope, uh, what we would maybe call a, a matchlock or something like that. But this is a flintlock. So there's a, a piece of um, flint or chert or agate that's on the um, on the hammer here that then strikes the frizzen. Ow, that hurt my finger. Um, we would have had a, a finer powder potentially in that pan. And the, uh, the flint hits that frizzen, creates a spark, lights that priming powder, which shoots a flame through this tiny hole in the side of the barrel here, um, which is called the flash hole. I was going to say, that's the flash hole, yeah. yeah. And uh, which then ignites our, our mainline charge and pushes our ball down the barrel. Pretty simple. It, it is. Well, it's kind of, but also, like, whoever came up with it. A lot of thought. Some pretty, pretty ingenious. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, black powder rifle. Black powder rifle, yep. This was long before the advent of smokeless powders or similar powders to smokelesses. Um, what I love about these guns is that they have their uh, inner workings on the outside. So when we think about modern firearms, we have our firing pin, our firing pin spring, 
um, contained within something like a bolt or a bolt carrier group or, or some other mechanism of the rifle, right? So like if you think about an AR-15, it's, its firing pin is contained and floats within this bolt. Its um, sear and hammer mechanisms are contained within the lower receiver. None of that is exposed to the right. outside world. And all of that happens very linearly. Um, and then this lock, as it's called, this mechanism on the side here, is, is all in the external part of the rifle. Um, and, uh, you know, it's spring, the lock spring here is, is visible. All the guts are, are very similar in function to what a modern fire, firearm is. It's just there on the outside. Right. Um, so we're, we're not, we're not uh, igniting anything in line with the bore. It's on the side, and that had its own um, set of challenges and, and complications. But uh, it's really cool to look at this and, and be like, well, you know it's a gun, right? You know it's a rifle. Um, it bears most the same semblance of what we have today. Sure. It's just its operating mechanisms are external as opposed to internal for the majority. I can't imagine what this would have been like to use in some sort of austere environment or even just inclement weather. Tough. Or even just not standing in a line with the... Like, uh, you talk about... Okay, I see that somehow this uh, thingamajig that you flipped over here, what was it called again? This is this is called your frizzen? The frizzen. The frizz. Okay, so that is at least protecting the powder charge that you have in there Dude. somewhat. somewhat. To a degree. Not to a uh, it her- hermetically sealed environment or anything like that. Right. But um, it's at least protecting it and keeping it in there. Because I was wondering, if you didn't have that, I mean, all you have to do is tilt the thing, you're... Your powder charge is going to basically pour right out. Exactly correct. Um, rain, snow, um, dew, mist, fog, whatever, could contaminate that priming powder in there and, and goof the whole thing up. So you would read of or see depictions of covers that either soldiers or, or um, you know hunters or whoever was using this gun may have put over the top of the lock mechanism to keep some of those elements out. And, of, of course, you know if you had a piece of buckskin or, or leather of some kind over the top of it, um, that afforded you a tremendous amount mm-hmm. more protection than even just the, the frizzing wood over the pan. Um, and, yeah, but it's a very real thing. So you, and your primer was a rock. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and so... Um, like this one is held in place by a strap of lead that was common, also was leather, right? Sure. So, you know, this thing has a finite number of times that it can strike that frizzing before it gets dull, and then it needs to be redressed so that it creates spark. And then, of course, it can just fracture and shatter. Right. In which you need to find yourself another source of flint, which you would likely have kept on. You know what I should have brought? Hmm. I should have brought my possibles bag. Oh, sure. Golly, what a fool I am. Um you know, uh, the well, I would imagine a person might carry some extra flints with them. Absolutely, you would. Yep, or the ability to nap flint. Okay, sure. To, to know how to do that. Um, so I think this is. I get so excited about this now that I'm talking about it out loud. When we look back in prehistoric times, and we would see um, tribes across the world um, napping stone to make mm-hmm. tools, whether it was knives or scrapers um, or in projectile points, spear points, etc. We weren't that far removed in 1776, even though we had something that propelled a, a metallic projectile downrange at a high rate of speed. We were still napping, still napping flint. flint to make our guns go off. Correct. What a wild deal. And then this carried on. I mean, they were still using flintlocks into the Civil, Civil War, mm-hmm. um, you know, which was, you know, mid part of the 1800s. But um, 
It's such an interesting thing. What an what an awesome combination of prehistoric technology and what was a quantum leap then mm-hmm. with at the time modern technology, which was a quantum leap, and the two fused and blended at that point. I mean, yeah, it's we've harnessed the power of this rock and we have in, injected it into our mechanical device. Yeah. That's like some science fiction thing. Like they've got some sort of crystal that they got to put in to exactly. make the ship go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it all comes back to a rock. Right? Well, yeah, or, or Jedi's and their lightsabers and everything. Yes. Like, oh, and even think about just uh, maybe you mentioned this. I was actually I was I was thinking about my next question. So maybe I missed this, but just starting fire in general. Yeah, pretty pretty, yep. pretty big deal. Yep. Right. Uh, boy, good old Flint. Yeah. Napoleon Dynamite's time machine with the crystals. Yep. Gonna... Hold on, I have to put in the crystals. Piece <laughs> <Peace> crap. <laughs> <laughs> Turn it off. Turn it off, Kip. Um, so, so did other <laughs> did better systems exist at the time, or it, were they just too difficult to manufacture? And, um, and so this was just what they had to do to to outfit a uh, an army of rebel fighters, or what? So I think yes, better systems did exist, uh, and I think. But not on a mass scale. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, you would have had gun makers from Germany um, or other European countries that had then ended up in the New World that were exceptional at their craft. Um, and they would make these one-of-ones that were just beautifully well-fit, well-finished, uh, and to you know a higher degree of accuracy. Um, and this is where we saw rifling happen. Although I, you know, I'd have to talk to like a black powder historian to, to figure out the prevalence of rifle bores in the new world. Um, at that time, I'm certain they probably existed, although probably not at a high level. Um, you also saw a reduction caliber. So we, we saw a lot of 40 and 30 caliber offerings in those rifles. Um, here again, lead was a commodity, uh, and, and one not easily come by, I suppose. And so, if you were um, a long rifleman and you were using your rifle for defense and hunting, it may be advantageous to have a smaller bore so that instead of getting one projectile, you get two. Sure. Right. And you put your precedence on accuracy. Um, Speaking of projectile, I think this is a 69 Yeah. Caliber. Yeah. And you know, bore diameters were kind of subjective at that point. Sure. 68, 69, um, pretty loose fit. So mm-hmm. we used a, a cloth or paper patch. Um to wad that up and, and try to get some seal uh, inside of that bore, um, 69, 68-ish. Yeah. I was watching uh, I was watching a video, uh, and a guy was loading this. He actually did it a few different ways. He had some paper cartridges. Yep. Which I thought it was really interesting to watch. I mean, he'd bite the top of the paper off. Yep. He'd pour a little bit of the powder in the pan, yep. close the frizzen, yep. then pour the rest of the powder down the barrel, and then just kind of scrunch the whole thing up, which I believe it contained the bullet as well. Correct. And that was kind of, I guess, the the, the, the that paper of the paper cartridge became like the wadding and the, or the patch, if Absolutely. you will. And then off it went. But then he also took this same gun. He was using this gun. Charlevel, yeah. Yeah. And uh, he used a piece of, um, of buckskin yep. as a patch. And then what he said with that one, though, and I guess here's where I'm going with the uh, the 69 caliber. He actually used a much smaller ball mm-hmm. with the buckskin yep. because I think it was... Um, it's probably thicker. It's thicker, yeah. yeah. It's like a little more substance to it. Yep. And then he also used uh, a, a material called toe as... So he... Uh, what did he do? He poured powder and then the 
Toe, which is, uh, gosh, I, it's in my computer. It's made of some plant. And that was cloud. essentially like the wadding, put the bullet on top of that, and then took another piece of that wadding and put it on top of the bullet okay. to kind of hold it in place. And then, uh, and then, and then shot. It was, it was, it was interesting to see kind of the, um, I guess the versatility and also the, um, it wasn't picky. Sure. You know, large bore diameter allows you to get away with that. You know, another popular um, wadding material was wasp nest. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's paper. So correct, and and so you think about um, you think about like the resourcefulness of a people when like this was the most modern thing that we had manufactured, aside from like a seafaring vessel, perhaps, um, and there was some optics at that point, uh, albeit crude. To go out and be like, okay, what am I doing today? I got a farm. I have to hunt. Oh, gosh, there's some wasp nests. I'm going to smoke out that nest. That is going to be a super useful thing for me later on while I'm hunting or in combat. Just making, make use of I'm, everything. Yeah, oh, that's you're, you're wadding material. Use of it. You're not just throwing yeah. rocks at it for fun. Right. Correct. <laughs> yeah, don't do that, though. Um, but yeah, this was one of a couple arms that was, uh, I guess that's how we got on this conversation, that was popularized during uh, the... War of our independence. War of independence. Yes. Yep. So uh, where was the where, where was the Charlevelle originated? It sounds it sounds French. It's a gift from the French. In fact, is um, it? We used brown besses. That was a pretty common arm. Mm-hmm. Charlevelle was uh, an extraordinarily prolific arm. Um, some fun spooky history about how a whole bunch of these showed up on our shores when uh, we couldn't get anything into the New World. Uh, maybe a document was signed in a different format. Maybe this was destined to go somewhere else, but uh, actually went west and ended up on the on the east coast, the west side of the east coast. <laughs> and yeah. uh, and uh, they're going west. What a surprise! Yeah. But, it's, but it's actually east. Through a through a, a you know a whoopsie on a document, all of a sudden a whole shipload of these things showed up and armed a bunch of uh, our our early countrymen. Um, so a gift from the French, and thank you. Um, that we ended up with the Charlevelle in hand to um, to fight that war. Are we thanking the French in some ways? Absolutely. Yeah. For our independence. Absolutely. Right? Yes. And uh, it. you know, remarkably effective arm. Accuracy wise, I was reading on a man-sized target about forty to fifty yards. Like I'd say, like reliable. Like, which is just like you know, you think of like the things we are capable of today. Like, I can't imagine being at like, you know, you know, 60 yards and being like, ah, bang. And they're like, ah, you know, or seeing something at, at 80 and being like, yeah. ah, just not, I gotta get close. Save my ammo. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was better than a bow, right? Yeah. By, by a margin. Um, I mean, yeah, they didn't exactly have compound PRS bows back then. So, not that this that's not necessarily nope, not necessarily related. This, this thing is long. Um, I never read of a of archery equipment being used by American troops in that war. Hmm. But I would almost have to imagine that I would it have not happened at least right at least sometimes. I, I mean, Mel I, Gibson used a couple axes. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm certain that some of our native allies during that utilize their their archery equipment which they were extremely proficient with but i i have to wonder did anybody who was out there at that time a, a colonist fighting for uh his or her independence picked up uh a longbow and, and engaged 
If you did, if you could comment on this <laughs> comment podcast and yeah. comment below. Tell us. Um, you can affix a bayonet to it. Sure. We don't have one here, but uh, sounds like that was actually a pretty important uh, accessory and was used like commonly. Oh, yeah. I mean, you fire your round, it takes you... It's not like um, reloading a single-shot shotgun where you just flick it open, the shell kicks out, you drop a new one in, you snap it shut, mm-hmm. cock the hammer, and go. It's a process to load them. Um, these shooters were extremely competent in doing so because their lives certainly depended on it. But when you're fighting in columns that are marching towards each other mm-hmm. and that distance of engagement is 60 yards, um, you fire that weapon, 60 yards can be covered pretty quickly by the opposing force, you ought to have the bayonet on there um, for when all of a sudden you don't have time to stuff another um, little uh, little, sound- little known great at CQB. <laughs> right. Right. Correct. A CQB firearm. Yeah, it sounded like, you know, obviously a variety of uh, circumstances where the bayonet might be used, but also in... Um, I Okay, so I personally don't like view it like... I don't think of the bayonet as I'm going on offense, but it sounds like... If you had somebody on their heels a little bit, yep. that's what they'd be like. We're going, hey, we're going, I'll like, fix bayonets. Uh, we're rush them. Yep. You know? Can I point out that when I first picked this thing up, I was expecting it to weigh more than, say, an M1 Garand sure. or some other sort of like World War II era battle rifle with a wood stock and all yep. that. It's not very heavy for how tremendously long it is. And I have to assume that's because really all it is, it's a very long barrel, but it's it's quite svelte in the wood furniture here. And then the action itself is fairly simple. It's, it doesn't have a big beefy bolt and all this reciprocating mass and springs and guide rods. It just, it's, it's a barrel with some stuff attached. So the barrel looks huge. And it is. I mean, it's not quite three quarters of an inch in diameter. Um, on the inside, but it you know it's large, 0.7 nominally diameter on on the bore, but it's thin walled, so it looks oh. yeah it looks much bigger um, than it actually is. So if like this was a rifle barrel from modern era, you know it'd probably have a 22, Just a six, a six right? five millimeter bore, um, and it would weigh a ton more than it does now. Okay. Um, I used to have a customer at the at the shop I worked at that had. Um, a brown bass from the period, like a real one. And he actively shot that firearm. Mm-hmm. And he handed it to me, and he goes, you know what this is? And I said, no. And he goes, well, this is a brown bass. He's like, this gun f- probably very likely fought battles in the Revolutionary, or in the, yeah, the Revolutionary yeah. War. Very and cool. um, I was like, holy smokes. And I looked at it, and I was amazed at how paper thin the barrel was. Yeah. And I was like, is this just due to corrosion? He's like, no, it's not really corroded. It's patinaed, and it's been, you know, browned correctly. Um, that's just how they were. And and the barrel was roundish, but it wasn't a perfectly concentric bore. Yeah. Um, and he shot it. He was a reenactor. He was an enthusiast. Oh, wow. Yeah. And um, and he shot it actively. I, I never asked him if he hunted with it, and I should have. He's since passed. But um, remarkable firearm. When you uh, can, you were talking about the accuracy before, Ryan, and you were you were kind of talking about you know fighting in columns, yeah, uh, which is you know uh, uh, you know I guess one of the uh, preferred tactics of the time, uh, it, and it sounds like to me like 
that style, like it kind of made up for the accuracy yep. because you're you're firing the I guess these controlled volleys of fire, just almost like a wall of lead, you know, coming yep. at you and. They you might really not hit the guy you're aiming at, but you might hit the guy next to him. They did really sort of help each other out in the, uh, you know, the whole accuracy standpoint. Yeah, it was like, hey, we'll stand this way to make it. it I'm just glad we got away from. I'm it. glad we did too. Aiming these I, things, you know what? Like, I think honestly, even back then, I probably would have asked some questions. And you know me, Jim, I don't like conflict. Uh, <laughs> but like, like, are we sure this is the best idea? I mean, uh, you know, I don't, it, I don't know. It just yeah. doesn't seem like like who came up with this. Like, right, right. Aiming these things. Speaking of accuracy, there is a little blade sight on the end, but it, there's this other thing. Mark asked this question prior to the podcast, and I said, nope, nope, nope. Got to ask it on the. Well, I didn't the think it was, but, but then this I'm thing like, at the rear huh? could. I mean, it's, it's it's like cockeyed, so it wouldn't even. But it looks like a rear peep sight. It does. It's not. It's on the hammer. Yeah, it's it's not that. So this, I mean, I couldn't even conceive of a way that it would work because it's not even in line with the. You know, I was like, no. So you have slung across your body um, a possibles bag, and within that bag, you would find a couple things: a bunch of balls, a few spare flints, um, patching or wadding material of some kind, maybe a small knife for cutting patches out of cloth, um, and then a variety of tools and picks things like this. One of these um, tools might have been, and I, I wasn't there, so I don't know. I'm, I'm sure that they did a lot more um, multitasking than, than I'm leading on to. But one of these things would be a flash hole pick that if your flash hole had been plugged by, say, tallow or beeswax mixed with powder or just powder residue itself, you'd stab it in that flash hole and you'd pick it out. And on sure. the other end of that, it looked like a large iron nail. Um, you needed to change your flint, put it in there, break that rascal loose. You like a wrench. Yep. Take that out, pull your flint out that that was you know shattered or broken or tipped wrong. Retain it because that's a useful thing. It's like taking your mag out and putting it in your mag pouch, and put a fresh flint and tension that rascal back up. Toss yep. me a flint. Yeah, right. Changing flint. That so, would be Call of Duty Revolutionary War Ops. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that possible's bag was the equivalent of the chest rack and the battle belt today, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's pretty high, it was pretty high speed that it had that actually. Oh, yeah. You looked at that and you were like, Whoa, brother. So yeah, I really goofed up. I should have brought that possible's bag. We can I, bring it in. Maybe we'll I, maybe we'll run through it or something. I should have brought it would be te- technically period correct. Um and then I've got a I've got a oh, I've got, I definitely have a period correct powder horn. Um that powder horn was was made in the seventeen hundreds. Cool. Uh, it's yeah. funny with my or funny, not funny, maybe maybe everybody has this. I don't know. But like my modern muzzle-loading kit that I bring with me, I still call my possibles bag. Do, yep. you, ca- do you call it that? Um, No. No, oh, I do. I'm like... <laughs> you know what, Mark? Keep it alive. Yeah. I'm gonna. How's the uh, trigger on this thing, Ryan? Well, Jim, uh, I guess we could find out. The problem is... is if I'm not opposed. We, we pull this back. It's going to strike that frizz, and there's going to be some sparkage. I mean, let's do it. Have at it. You want me to do it? It's yeah, a, I do. It's a flat trigger. It's very modern. <laughs> Dust pop. Ooh. There she goes. Yeah. I was kind of concerned about the whole fire part to really pay attention to the trigger, but I now uh, sort of replaying it in my head, the trigger isn't too, uh, it's not too bad. A, a, a bit mushy. Sure. 
but not bad, not well, heavy. I was expecting heavier. Yeah, probably not terrible. And, no. and it's funny when you look at the design of, of how that sear and that lock mechanism work together. It's not dissimilar to a trigger today. A bit, a bit glocky. Sure. Yeah. But you know, like there's that. some the stuff original, going on. Yeah. The, the original. original. The uh-huh. original. Um, but you saw the spark there. It wasn't. It wasn't like, oh my gosh! It wasn't like your plasma cutting and a piece of slag hits the ground and explodes. It's not a whole hell of a lot going on there. No, you kind of really hope that those sparks actually make it to the stuff. And then you look at the frizzin, and you look at the contact on the frizzin, and you can see that it's somewhat even, but not exactly. (laughs) And so um, the really good guys would harden their frizzins, have their frizzins shaped in a certain way, and nap their flints and get flint steel to ensure that they had really good flint. Contact. These guys were the really uh, these guys basically they they went on they probably survived they had children who had children who had children who all grew up to be the reloading community today yeah <laughs> there you go it uh, when I was watching that video online uh, video online I was um, and again you know this is like a modern version so maybe it's you know faster more reliable I don't know I mean it, you know it. Um, I was surprised to see how fast it went boom, though. Like, there wasn't, like, some huge lock time delay. Like, it was a boom. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, it's there. So when you, It's there, but yeah. it wasn't... You weren't waiting for it, necessarily. Like, I'm, you should watch this video. I'll tell you, I fired a flint lock, which I call flinch locks, exactly twice in my life. Um, one went down, one went up. Neither went the direction I wanted them to go. <laughs> I was not ready. Um, yeah, I'm just. I was. I was impressed with how how fast yeah, it took. You know, and it, that that would vary too with the quality of the flint, the hardness of the frizzin, shape of the frizzin. Um, and I'm sure there were times where it didn't go off. You know, like you oh, certainly pull the oh, trigger yeah, and certainly. Oh, maybe maybe try that again. Yep, certainly. Um, and then th- that powder that you talked about, the gentleman who was pulling it from the, um, you know, that paper cartridge, mm-hmm. um, gunpowder, like black powder these days, you buy it in oh. a variety of grades. Yeah. So you'd get like null B or priming powder for your pan. Um, one F, one, one and a half F, two F, three F, four F for, you know, the actual powder charge. Um, you know, a gun like this, probably one, one and a half or two F. Um, would be appropriate. But then you would use a finer granulation of powder like that Nolby or priming powder um, to ensure that you had a, an explosive you know, detonation at, at that uh, touch-off point. Um, that might not have been the case because black powder production at that point in time was an extraordinarily crude process. Right. And um, I, I don't know that um, powder manufacturers of the 1700s were necessarily sifting powder and they weren't able to control, um, you know, powder production to the degree that we can today. And yeah. black powder today is an amazing propellant for what it is. It's black powder. Uh, it's still very crude. Right. Right. Yeah. It's it's made out of, you know, charcoal and saltpeter and a couple other little things in there. And charcoal, saltpeter, and uh, oh, what's the uh, sulfur? Yep. And so primarily, right? Yep. And so you think about that combination. It's like, well, it's kind of a home chemist thing. Which it is like, I mean, it's a, it's uh it's not equal parts. You you got to get it. I was reading about uh, black powder a little bit as well. And just kind of like 
the evolution of black powder and perfecting the recipe and how um, for many years it wasn't it, w- it wasn't knowing the ingredients. It was knowing how much of each to get it to work right and just kind of like how we got to where we are today with it. It is an awesome propellant, though. It's, uh, I mean, it's, it's um, technology always amazes me, but it's just these things that, I mean, that seems like a, just a really amazing thing to figure out a very, very long time ago. Mm-hmm. And a lot longer ago than this gun even existed. Yeah. Mm. Changed the world. A lot longer ago than this gun existed. Hundreds of years. We should do a black powder podcast. I was thinking that would about be interesting. I was thinking about ordering up a couple of more pounds of three F right now because I have a oldish black powder and no, I got that hawking out there sure. that we never do anything with. Sure. Um oh what you're gonna say, Jim. I had one thing. Who was Charlevelle? I don't know. Honestly. Was he like the French JMB? That could be. I'd have to look into that, but I don't know who Charles Lavelle was. It's a good question. You know, good who, name, who's, strong name. Who's Brown Bess? I couldn't tell you, but do you know? I don't. Sounds like a horse that you'd bet on. It could be. Could be. Yeah. Uh, not that I'm. Sounds like something you get in trouble for calling somebody these days. Horse betting person. Um, we, uh, as far as rate of fire. In my readings again, Ryan. Which this is this is one thing, I guess. Having shot even a modern muzzleloader, I was yep. like, that's either impressive, or maybe exaggerating. But I mean, I'm I'm sure it's probably accurate. They were saying uh, three rounds per minute. Yep. And I'm like, how many? I know how long it takes to. I'd say particularly like a reload after you fire at a deer or something like that. I mean, you darn train wreck. You know, so, this is where those paper cartridges were extraordinarily handy, um, if you had the time to manufacture them prior to that conflict. Right. Right? So, at, at least at that, you had a, a self-contained unit. We'll call it a cartridge, right? Because it is. Right. Um, it was, your powder was volumetrically measured out. You knew that, okay, if you were going to use paper of X dimension, your ball took up this much. The, the cordage that secured the ball within the paper made the available column here, and then the end was twisted or tied to this much, right? So you filled that powder up. You had a whole bunch of those in there. Um, you fire your weapon. You bring the gun down. You grab a cartridge. You rip the end. You pour the powder. You prime the gun. You you know, you run the whole thing down. Um, yeah, three a minute uh, is pretty damn impressive, right? And, yeah. If you didn't have that, and you're you're lucky enough to be f- like feeding from a powder flask that has a measuring device on it. That's cool. Um, if not, you're going straight from the horn. Just giving her. Yep. And then do Oof. you do what? What what is your wadding situation that seems look like? About right. <laughs> yeah. What does your wadding situation look like? And that's that's probably the longest part of the process. Is so like if you if you had to cut wadding from a strip. Right, and you'd see these strips tri- tied around the belt. It looked like a, a sash or a belt or a scarf or something like this. You know, you you'd take that gun. Once you'd have it powdered, you'd throw that up over the top. You'd put that ball in there. You'd get it started, and then you'd take a special knife, a patch knife, right. and you'd cut it off, and then you'd ram it down. That's a lot of hands going on to, yeah. in order to get that thing spun up. Um, I have to imagine 
that a lot of these suckers just got a ball dropped on the barrel and then you just pull the trigger and hope that you had enough back pressure to get it going forward. Right? Under, yeah. under the duress and the time like that. Also, that's where that bayonet came in really handy. Right. I was just about to <laughs> that's say That's the other thing, though. With thing. a bayonet on the end, I imagine they're probably sharp. And now you, you got that big knife out there and you're trying to mess around with the ramrod and put the stuff on the thing. Yeah. Hmm. I can't imagine how that's many times guys are accidentally slicing their paws open just you, trying to move quick. You may dismount your bayonet to reload. I don't know. Yeah. It, yeah. It's a good I question. guess yeah. God wasn't there. But uh, I, it would be tough trying to move so quick. With a with a four handed operation with a knife hanging out right next right yeah. next door. Yeah, I want to talk about the sights a little bit more. Sure. So we talked about that you know rear part of the hammer not being a peep. Yep. But it also doesn't have a rear sight. Nope. She's flat in the back. Flat in the back. Little little indicator up front. <laughs> just a a simple blade. Um, if you're looking at it there, I don't know which cameras are which, but uh, if you're looking at it, there's a just a simple blade there. Um, so not much of a sight reference, but at least something to get you um somewhat. I mean square. A bead. Yep. You have at least a uh, you have a very long sight plane. That's true. Yeah, and I mean, you know, for what they are, smoothbore gun, big giant round ball of lead. You keep, you know, three on a man sized torso at fifty yards. It ain't bad. I but wouldn't want to get hit by one. It's it's crazy to Ooh. think about that. Um, they fought closer than that. That's, that's wild. Uh, yeah, that is wild. Just Shoot. having having. A, Hundreds, thousands of guns pointed at you, yeah. 40, 50 yards away, yeah. just straight at you. You don't know if you're going to take one yeah. or keep fighting for the next volley. What a time to be alive. Yep. Well, and then, I mean, I think eventually <sighs> we didn't always fight in that manner. No. Well, well no, because you know at some point it's all going to just it's gonna go to Sabres SHIT. And, 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 and bayonets yeah, I mean, at that point. Well, that and I think, I think weren't other... I guess, you know, methods of like guerrilla warfare essentially sure. is, I think that's. This is where you saw a lot of those uh, long rifles of the of the era come into effect. Um, those smaller caliber, higher accuracy guns. Mm-hmm. Um, this is where maybe modern sniping found its roots. Uh, was was from that, uh, was from that uh, era in time. Um, another thing too, I mentioned grape shot. I didn't mention swan shot or bird shot earlier, but um, shot in general, not uncommon to be used in these two. So while you would have had a single ball mm-hmm. flying out there, you could also fill that thing up with grape swan or bird shot and fire a, a volley of angry lead bees. Um, certainly more effective at close range. Right. But, um, you know, another advantage of the smooth bore and what a horrific, uh, what a horrific tool at that. That's cool, and they man. Still, they still made them pretty. Yeah. You know, uh, so I've seen you know more than one um, actual period correct gun, mm-hmm. and the wood to metal fit is not as outstanding as this. But well, but I mean, just like they didn't have to do some of this. Sure, yeah, and all this detail. And I don't know how much of that is just the one that we have, the recreation area, and how much of it. You know, they you, could have just done the AK forty seven round, just put a big slab of metal here. Just, and a lot of them, a lot of them were that. You know, historical firearms. You know, pre, we'll just say pre eighteen seventy. Um, and you 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 go back into that and you look at them and and you know we've got the the bands up here that are holding the barrel to the stock and you know these are obviously machined and and well done. A lot of those are just hammered iron or brass bands. Yeah. Um. So they get them on and they just pound them into place and and then you look at them you're like oh that's that's very obviously hand hammered metal. Sure. Um. You know the industrial revolution was a hell of a thing. 
uh, once we figured out how to make mass producible parts and things like that. But, um, you know, a lot of this on a, on a period correct one, like the sling swivels, is you look at this and you're like, okay, very evidently manufactured. This would have been a hammered component mm-hmm. at that point. And um, it was a lot of brass that was used at that point as well, steel and um, other things like that, that, that would have made a, a period example a bit more crude. But nonetheless, this is an extraordinarily accurate representation of what that gun would have been. And really, super cool. Really cool. Yeah. Dark when you think about it, mm-hmm. but also very cool. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, it's fun to talk about. It's wild to talk about. It's heavy to think about. And also, like, I'm very thankful for this thing. And oh, yeah. what it afforded the folks who were able to use it and sacrifice. And it's just amazing and that it was instrumental in the America that we see today. and The world that we the world we live in now. today. Yeah. yeah. Yes. I have nothing Thanks. else to add to that. We should shoot this sometime. I don't have any uh, 68 or 69 caliber balls, but that could be easily remedied. Find some tin soldiers. Melt them down. I've Lead got, soldiers, uh, I should say. Sorry. I've got uh, plenty of black powder. We have at least a flint. And we know it works. Yes. Bingo. All right. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Happy Independence Day today. And darn it. Every day, if you're listening to, to this on, on, on a day beyond or a different day. But uh, hopefully you enjoyed this podcast. Take care. We'll catch you on the next one. See you.